here. What's the bad news? He was torn apart! Off his head like button ginger bread man. The wages of sin is gonorrhea, syphilis, and death. I'm the lord of the harvest. Yeah, how much blood jets out of a guy's neck when his throat's It's showtime! <laughs> listeners and welcome back to don't open this podcast i am one half of the two-headed terror mike joined by the other half tim and today we're gonna invite you in to episode 31 anthology of anthologies volume one so tim it's great to be back it's nice to be back it's always good to be back i think uh we haven't talked in a day so um <laughs> it's, it's it's been it's been hours yeah. um i i still feel like we're coming fresh off high-rise horror i want to just run back out and see evil dead rise again but we'll we'll hold off on that just yet i would like to see it again especially since uh i become privy to some people that seem to really hate it not even dislike it just sort of hate it and, Shun. and they're evil dead fans i remember a lot of evil dead fans hating army of darkness because it wasn't uh horror enough and it was too much fantasy but i've sort of let the strange trajectory of the evil dead franchise sort of wash over me with open arms i i I don't know what to expect from one installment to another and i just sort of let myself be entertained by them and they haven't failed me yet i know it's gonna be something for everyone so yeah if it all happens to hit so you enjoyed the tv show correct am i right yeah i enjoyed it like it's, it it's goofy. Stuff. It was Army of Darkness, but Army of Darkness with a much more kind of not necessarily vault. Yeah, it's vulgar. It's a more yeah. kind of vulgar adult Army of Darkness because Army of Darkness is more in the line of like a, the Robert Tapper and whatnot, like the Hercules, the Legendary Journeys, mm-hmm. um, Xeno Warrior Princess. It's more in those line of kind of that. But uh, all that stuff is it's, it's firmly rooted in in Raimi and and crew, you know, the stuff they grew up with. I mean, there's always been a three stooges element to, to those films. Um, I do think it'd be interesting that the way we sort of talked about the different timelines that we now view the evil dead series in, it wouldn't be bad to have a Raimi directed sequel. It doesn't even necessarily have to have Ash. I mean, I think they could come up with a cool way to have an older, a significantly older Ash and maybe have Raimi direct it so he could ape all of his Raimi-isms, you know, like visually speaking, and it yeah. wouldn't feel like a ripoff because it's Raimi doing it. Because I have heard some complaints that there isn't enough of that, like, wacky Evil Dead camera angle stuff. But then again, it's not really him making it. So I could see where that the director <laughs> of the new one didn't want to go too hard, like lean too heavy into that because it's not really his style. That's something that Raimi kind of crafted. 
So yeah, just like the camera on a two by four running through the woods. Yeah, the Vaso cam yeah. and the bungee cam, all that stuff. <laughs> so yeah, what have you been up to? Uh, I've just been kind of catching up on some movies and catching up on some reading lately. Um, I know I've mentioned before that I'm still a comic guy and uh, horror comics specifically, but generally everything. And I recently kind of got into a comic that's kind of like a mini series called Hotel with two L's by John Lees. Takes place at this supernatural motel in the middle of nowhere that you can only find if you're meant to find it. Otherwise, it's just an empty strip of road. And uh, it's all about each kind of comic is a different room in the motel. And it's all the people that it's very like EC comics of uh, the lover who tried to get whatever his wife. And then she comes back and gets him or the all com- of these the, various The comeuppance tales. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's all very much like that. But it, it's all this fun kind of slightly interconnected that if you pay attention, you realize, oh, so-and-so from the the third story is actually walking around and you see them looking out the window in the first story or something like that. Oh, that sounds like a spooky take on like four rooms meets EC Comics kind of vibe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. See, that's cool. I I kind of am jealous that you find the time or, or make the time because I know you're super busy to read up on that because like I I love horror comics and as a kid, I was heavily into them. But I kind of fell off just with other stuff coming into play and maybe having to rewatch movies for a podcast and all that. Um, <laughs> I, I like the idea of of getting back into horror comics. Um, I do think that like growing up, I mean, I was always like a Mad Magazine and Cracked and all that. But with my love of, of the darker shit, um, I always leaned heavily into Heavy Metal Magazine and Creepy and Eerie Magazines. And those are sort of spawned from... EC Comics, um, I, I guess listeners probably have heard us reference that felt very EC in the past, and we probably try to mention that it's EC Comics. And for the people that don't know, I mean, that is a, a comic book um, company. They, the, the EC stood for um, Entertaining Comics. I think in the very beginning, it stood for Educational Comics, but they kind of came under some backlash. The owner's son, uh, William M. Gaines, he was in control of EC when everything uh, sort of spun off and went into this uh, horror comics are evil and the the comics code came into play. So this yeah. is like 1940s to mid 1950s, like the height of EC was in the mid 50s and the whole thing crashed in on itself. But but the the Gaines family still owns the rights to all these characters. So that has sort of permeated pop culture. I, I would have to say that like there's a lot of um the, the ghoulatics were were the three people that headed the, the comic versions. They they were the hosts of each comic book. And you had the Crypt Keeper, the Vault Keeper, and the Old Witch. And those three characters are still like represented to this day. Trick or Treat Studios puts out masks, like latex masks of those. And there's a lot of collectibles and statues and things. They've really persevered over time. And I do think the stories and the artwork by people like Jack Davis and Al Feldstein and Ghastly Graham Ingalls, like that stuff has stuck around for decades. And with good reason, because it's they're stripped down, very in-your-face morality tales. And I know they influenced everybody from George Romero to John Carpenter. I mean, it's it's just the influence on the horror genre is insane. 
Did you ever read any of those? Because they kept reissuing them every yeah. decade. There'd be new new issues of the same stories. So yeah, so I read some of the ones, kind of the the original runs, not necessarily during like the the fifties and so, but kind of some of the later on ones. Only because my father, when he was younger, was a comic collector himself and a fan of reading a lot of them. And one of the things he liked was a lot of like the EC comics. So. When I started getting into comics, uh, there was a like, kind of like bins of just all these old ones. And it was a lot of like the superhero comics. But then you also have like Turok. And then also you have like Little Devil. And then you also have like the Dean Martin comic. And then you have EC Comics. So it was all this kind of great plethora of things to get into. Yeah. But Killer DC Art is too. just, I just connected in with all of the EC comics. And none of the shit was as shocking. I mean, nowadays it's it's anything but shocking. But I guess, you know, to try and imagine these images, you know, of like uh, like a ghostly uh, baseball team or football team playing with, uh, you know, severed limbs and all these crazy graphic panels. Um, I guess it did shock the living shit out of people back then. You know, kids would hide that stuff like it was a hustler or a playboy. You know, and it, I mean, you had decapitated women and people hanging from nooses. And these were like across the covers of these magazines. Anyone not clicking with what we're saying, I would just type in any of those titles, you know, into Google. And you'll like the haunt of fear always had, I thought, some of the, the most gruesome and ghastly covers, you know, they just grabbed me immediately as a kid. It's kind of funny that we're talking about horror comics that are present day and then like sort of the dawning of horror comics, um, because I, I feel like Tim and I should be donning like shrouds right now and like bringing the <laughs> lights down and the candle lights up. And these guys were like heavy into gallows humor and puns. So like, I I feel like if I were introducing what we're talking about tonight, I, I would have to get into that character and and ask all the listeners if they're if they're in the mood for some tapas of terror or a cornucopia of carnage or or even a charcuterie of shrieks because <laughs> we're about to get into some classic anthology films and some kind of uh, some new iterations. I wouldn't say brand new, but new enough to where it kind of mirrors the trajectory of, of like horror anthology comics. The same thing happened in movies. So, Tim, what are we uh, cracking open first? So we're going to be getting into all of our anthologies. And that actually reminds me of something that kind of is very EC Comics based. Seeing as like maybe the first it. the first time. Yeah. The EC comics were ever brought to the screen, maybe. So what will actually, our first story for the evening is Freddie Francis's Tales from the Crypt, 1972. Death lives. from the crypt. Tim, are you familiar with Freddie Francis? Do you, do you know anything about him? Uh, no. Okay. Freddie Francis, awesome guy. He unfortunately passed away in 2007. Um, he was a director and he worked with the Amicus Company to do a lot of their anthology films, but he had his roots in Hammer. 
And what I think so great about Freddie Francis, he he very much was a a, a wash and wear kind of guy. He he crafted solid films. He he made The Evil of Frankenstein, and he did um, Doctor Terror's House of Horrors, and uh, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, which is a, a great Hammer film. Torture Garden as well. If I don't know if I already mentioned that. If I did, I apologize. But a crazy thing about Freddie Francis, in addition to being an excellent director, he also was a phenomenal cinematographer, and he shot uh, everything from Glory and David Lynch's Elephant Man. Oh wow! And and the Straight Story, and he actually was the cinematographer for Scorsese's um, Cape Fear, the the newer version of Cape Fear and Dune. I mean, the, the guy is like. He's no slouch, and he's very diversified in what he had made. And I think it's kind of cool to to know that he never put himself above material like Tales from the Crypt. You know, he came to this with the concept of trying to make a solid anthology film, and they didn't skimp. You know, they they went to Highgate Cemetery in London, because that's where the film opens. Um, Anyone who ever goes to London, you could get a tour of that cemetery. It's amazing. But yeah, you know, reeling it back in. I don't want to give you a whole biography on on Freddie Francis, but uh, but yeah, here we are, 1972, Tales from the Crypt, several decades before HBO knocked that that whole Crypt Keeper concept, you know, into the public eye, where it the Crypt Keeper from that show became an icon, like a horror icon. Yeah, which I think it's become so synonymous with the TV show and the character of the Crypt Keeper that it gets hard to remember sometimes of, oh yeah, Tales from the Crypt was originally the movie. Oh, but Tales from the Crypt was originally the comic. Like it's, everybody thinks it kind of just birthed completely out of the Crypt Keeper on the the television series. Just because it was always in our consciousness for years. HBO created it, you, you know, and they didn't. But it is one of those things where the way you have an analog version of um, Hannibal Lecter from Manhunter, um, Brian Cox, everyone just knows like the, the, uh, the portrayal from Anthony Hopkins. Like it's that simple. Ralph Richardson, who's an amazing British actor. He played God in time bandits. He plays an excellent, excellent crypt keeper where I do think they like strangely drop the ball. They don't even put any like, dark circles under his eyes or anything. I mean, he's commanding enough to pull it off without any makeup, but it seems like a weird missed opportunity that they could have made him a little ghoulish, like beyond just an older guy in a shroud. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe at least a little, not necessarily ghoulish, but at least a little bit more haggard or worn. Yeah. But I think they weren't going for the, the, the traditional yeah, crypt comic keeper version. look or like the comic version, just because if the whole point of this movie is kind of leading up to, oh, the, the five people that are here, why are they here? What's kind of bringing them all together? If he came in from the <laughs> yeah. get-go looking like that, <laughs> you're going to be yeah. like, oh, it's nothing good. Yeah, I'm running. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. But yeah, how does this film open? Yeah, so there's kind of this tour going through all of this. Uh, as Mike said, the mausoleums, all of these crypts and everything. And then these five people find themselves kind of lost from that and end up down in this kind of cavern with the um, kind of seating and these columns and this kind of skull display of sorts. Yeah, it's like a crypt within a crypt. It's like... Yeah, 
a girl <laughs> drops her brooch and and someone stops to help her and then all of a sudden they're separated from the group. Yeah, so it's like if Exhibit decided to make you a cemetery where you get a crypt within your crypt <laughs> because now all of a sudden it's all these people they end up kind of trapped in there and this crypt keeper is kind of very ominously and very mysteriously talking to them about well, how did you get here? How did you find yourself here? What's going on? So then it's, he starts letting on of, well, I know. And then he starts telling the story of what exactly it was that may come for them kind of later on. We don't ever know of like, what exactly is his thing? How does he know this information uh, throughout kind of the the beginnings of the movie? Yeah, I think a a really um, positive trope in most uh, anthology horror films is that there's a wraparound uh, story that opens and closes because they need to kind of get to what is the vehicle for telling these individual stories. There are some anthologies that are just straight up, you know, title card with a title and then a hard cut at the end and then they go to the next story. You can have a good anthology that way, but I absolutely love that wraparound because to oh, yeah. me that that's an extra story like in and of itself is is the wraparound good you know if you get a good wraparound then you have an extra story that kicks ass like little billy and his dad you know from creep show that's its own yeah. story it's a really good one it kind of has two options it either goes the route of here's a wraparound in the stories or we have something like a trick or treat where Here's the stories, but they happen to interconnect somehow. So yeah. it's like, okay, there's no wraparound needed because they're kind of their own thing. And that's more that's more complicated and harder to pull off. And I do think Trick or Treat does it the best out of one of those. It's like the horror pulp fiction, and it yeah. works. Um, a lot of movies that try that, it doesn't work nearly as well. But for people that, that are uninitiated, if you love, like, straight up gothic atmosphere the 1972 tales from the crypt like from the opening you've got phantom of the opera sounding kind of organ music playing all the catacombs and everything that we just pointed out and then when that crypt keeper is is talking to these people he's sitting in this room that's like it looks like a 1930s universal set but there's this like abstract 70s you could tell it's like 70s influenced it's like a skull a massive stone skull above his head but not your traditional simple skull it's like withered and weird looking and it's it's kind of missing teeth but it has a enough structure to it that you know he's sitting under like a big skull and it makes it really creepy and eerie and it it fits that like ec vibe of just we're in for something fun, but also like spooky fun, like that sort of thing. And we kind of jump pretty quick, I think. It's maybe it's maybe 10 minutes. It's a very lean uh, uh, trajectory that the film's on. It's like you get 10 or 15 minutes max of the setup, and then we're right off to the races with, I think... Well, I don't want to give it away like this quickly. It is one of the best stories in the whole movie. <laughs> And, and it, there's no coincidence that it's actually also the first pilot episode of the Tales from the Crypt HBO series. They presented the first three episodes as a movie. Oh, as the like kickoff trilogy. thing. Yeah. yeah. There's a reason, because it's just so good. And which story is that, Tim? So that is, and all through the house, 
The only highlight to mention in the HBO version is Larry Drake is fucking awesome as the madman in yeah. and all through the house. And I, I think it was fun seeing Mary Ellen Trainer as mm. like doing a a darkly comic horror take in that instance. Oh, definitely. Um, but I I love Joan Collins in this one. Um, so in this one, very much like the one that they remade for the series, it's a woman who is with her husband at Christmas time and her daughter is in the house and it's snowing outside and she decides this is the time that she's going to bump off her husband uh, for the kind of the money involved with it. But uh, Mike, there's a little wrench in that plan because what is announced on the radio during that time? Maniac has escaped an asylum. I'm pretty sure he's uh, he's strangled some people, maybe axed somebody or stabbed them, whatever it may be. He's on the loose and he's in the area. And when you're Joan Collins and you just murdered your husband with a fire poker um, and sprayed the most hysterically bright blood. That's about the only thing that takes me out of this episode. <laughs> it's like the this blood, day glow. Uh, the blood they used, it, it, it's literally like kids finger paint. It's so red. But yeah, the setup for this is so damn simple. And that's what's so great about it. She has a little girl who's excited to see Santa. So she's not like falling asleep the way she she's expecting her to. She's constantly being like, daddy, uh, uh, mommy is, is, is Santa here yet? And her mother's like wiping blood off of a, a fire poker being like, go to bed, dear. It's no problem. Santa will be here. Yeah. So that sort of creates tension. Like There's how do you get element. blood out of shag? Yeah. <laughs> she does do something hysterical to show you like how forensics realistic forensics did not come into play in 70s movies at one point when she moves her husband's body she exclaims oh oh blood and so she runs into the other room and scoops some of his blood up into a cup and pours it she just pours it around him like you would never have that kind of of blood spatter or pour from what happened um but that's a great little moment. Uh, I know that none of these will take it like an extreme genius to figure out the twist. Each little story, it, it's anchored in the fact that it's got a shocking twist at the end. We're not going to spoil a single twist, but most of you, if you've watched a few horror movies or read a few horror comics, you'll probably be able to figure most of the twists out. It doesn't make them any less wonderful. Yeah. This one's quick. It's yeah, a short and I, one. And I think all of them feel very, fairly short. Because, I mean, in this one, we're getting five stories being cranked out in the, the 92 minutes. Yeah. Um, but I think it really goes with that easy comics origin of... It does. These aren't, like, graphic novels. It's just pay my nickel and get my, like, yeah. six pages <laughs> of here's this story. It's, okay, this person does this. They get their lead in the comeuppance and okay, somebody yeah. makes a pun and we move on to the next story. And I think, I think the keys to a good anthology working really well, you're always going to get variances in the stronger story to the weaker story. But if you could assemble four or five stories that range from good to great, then you actually have sort of delivered a great anthology. And with tales from the crypt, what I feel are some of the standout elements to the film as a whole are the atmosphere and the overall like production value in terms of the performances are all good and the writing is, is all solid. 
Um, again, there aren't that many groundbreaking elements to it, but you know, Tim and I have said time and again, we are massive suckers for Christmas horror and none more so than Bob Clark's black Christmas. Uh, <laughs> but this, this story though, man, it, there's something about the purity of these Christmas hymns playing through the whole story because most of it is silent. There's some talk, there's some dialogue, but it's almost completely a silent performance from Collins where she might say a word or a sentence, but you're watching this woman frantically go through her home that's covered in tinsel and those nice soft Christmas lights and this Christmas music. And she's pulling her husband's corpse around and it's, it's nasty because like the opening of the story is this husband writing out a, a card to put on a gift for his wife. And it's something to the effect of love you dearly. You're the greatest thing in my life. You know, uh, sincerely yours, Richard or something like that. And here she is killing him moments later. And because like Tim mentioned, it's, you know, 20 minute stories. You're really like just getting this like quick succession of different things happening. And the dude gets killed, you know, five minutes into the story, which is yeah. cool. Cause now you're dealing with her in a dead body uh, and the aforementioned maniac who I wonder if he's going to end up in her vicinity. I mean, I, I don't know, but I wonder if that's going to happen. Like, I mean, I, I love that kind of, it's not even a trope. It's only really, I've seen it like a handful of times. The something is happening, but also on the radio crazed maniac escapes from mental asylum. Yeah. Are they in your area? I remember the, there was a, I think it's a Spence episode, a uh, radio show with Cary Grant called on a country road where they're deciding to take a shortcut through this like small rural road and, they break down and they hear on the radio that a maniac has escaped and they're in the area. And then it's a woman banging on their car saying, I also heard the radio. Please let me in. There's the maniac out here. And you have to try to figure out, well, is she the maniac? That's is great. It that she's also lost out there and she heard it and she's like, I need to get to safety. So it's this whole thing <laughs> of just a radio saying a maniac's escaped. And that's the first thing I think of whenever I think of and all through the house. See, that sounds awesome. I've never heard that radio show, but it, it's a great setup. Um, there's a there's a short that's in um, an anthology called Nightmares that what we're going to cover later in, a, in another episode. Um, and they kind of utilize that same maniac deal. Uh, they kind of work that into the Brad Dorff um, intro in Urban Legends. There's sort oh, of a, yeah. is he crazy or is he the good guy? Uh, it's just a great idea. And also, like, I love when, when a person who's committed an atrocity gets stuck by by circumstance in such a way that they can't call for help and what i mean by that is obviously joan collins just killed her husband so she's not gonna be calling the cops to say i think i might have seen the maniac because she's got a freaking dead body in her house yeah. and you know the same goes for um there's another story that's set up like that very different movie but it's uh, a new zealand film called housebound and uh, people oh, always yes. talk about if I had a ghost in my house or whatever, you know, I get the hell out of there. This film takes the idea of what if you were on a house arrest and had something supernatural going on in your house? And it, granted, it's a horror comedy way more, I think, in the comedy than it is the yeah. horror. But it is a great idea to be on house arrest and have something horrible happening in the home so that you can't escape. 
But on on to story two, unless you, we can't really talk about this one much more without yeah, we can't giving away the ending. Giving away so. the ending. But yeah, and and all through the house is is one of the better ones, I think. So this one, I think, out of all five stories, and all through the house is the one that always comes to mind first for me. But I think this we're Christmas is the one people. that it's true. <laughs> but I think this next one is um, one of the others. The, the one that I actually always forget, I think. But I actually like this one, too. Uh, Reflection of Death with Ian Hendry and Susan Denny. I like it. I, I think it's uh, it's clever. You basically have a well-to-do uh, regular guy, you know, family man. And he, uh, he basically comes home from work. He's uh, exchanging pleasantries with his wife. He's going away on a business trip for a couple of days, is what she thinks. And he goes upstairs, kind of... Kisses his kids while they're in bed, but says goodbye to them. And in that, because again, these are short stories, we kind of get in the first two minutes, uh, this fucking scoundrel, he's, uh, he's not going away on a business trip. He's setting up a love nest and he's going to leave his family, his two kids and his wife. He's going to leave his family for this young mistress. And, uh, he drives off to pick her up and it's a stormy night and he picks her up from her apartment that's been cleared out and she kind of gives him a big old kiss and says, everything's all set. Uh, all, everything's been delivered to our new apartment and they kind of embrace and this is the start of my new life and they're, and that's it. They're off to go to this, this new place until as they're driving, she decides, Oh, let me, I'll drive. Uh, he's feeling tired. So she takes over and he ends up falling asleep and having uh, kind of a, of dream while he's in there and then kind of wakes up and time to see, Oh, there's a car coming and grabs the wheel and guides it. And it goes off and lands in the, the underbrush. And it's a pretty spectacular car crash. Yeah. For like a low, you know, a, a smaller film. So he doesn't know where she is. And it's interesting because at this point we switch from having the cameras on them to now all of a sudden we're first person from his point of view as he's trying to kind of collect himself and find out, well, is she here? Is she alive? Um, I'm clearly hurt. Let me go find out. I have to get back home or I have to get to somebody that can help. And it's all of the people he's coming across that are running away or shutting their windows or turning <laughs> him away. And we don't know why. And I remember reading, because again, I used to read all, all the EC comics. I remember this story like, you know, panel for panel almost because it was it was in one of my favorite issues and they do a really good job of of taking that first person perspective of the comic panels and the the um the reactions of the people that are seeing him and i think they faithfully adapt it into this short story i think it it owes so much to like lovecraft and and like standard um like horror comic pre-code uh shock ending this is one of those stories that I think everybody watching will figure out what the reveal's gonna be. Yeah. But it's still fun when you get the reveal. And um, I will say that the girlfriend comes into play too in a really cool way that, that I think rounds the story out. And, uh, you know, it's. This is not the. This is sort of like a filler story. But the performances are solid. And I do like the sort of peeping Tom, you know, POV vibe that, that they're giving you. Um, yeah. And I, I rather like the story. I think it's um, it's a decent 
follow up to it all through the house because so far we've got two stories. Ah, EC comics and horror comics are pretty much like the same four stories told over and over. <laughs> so at least we're getting like two very different ones back to back. So it's not like you're seeing the same thing. Plus the usage of the first person, at least it keeps it visually different. So it's not yeah. kind of the, the sameness of, okay, it breaks it up enough that even though the stories aren't wildly different in terms of if you really boil it down, it seems different and it breaks up. So this way at least, okay, now going back into three, if you have, oh, it's a comeuppance story, followed by a comeuppance story, followed by a comeuppance story. But there are three different flavors of that same kind of trope. Yeah. And you guys have to be in the mood for tales of comeuppance because you could have retitled this film, you know, tales of comeuppance. <laughs> it's it's five shitty people doing five shitty things and and it all comes back to haunt them. But in very cool ways. So keeping the uh, the ghastly proceedings going, um, I guess we should we should go on to the third story, which this one's your favorite, right? I ha I, mean, I love this movie. I, like I'm a big big fan of Tales from the Crypt. I do enjoy the Amicus uh, anthologies in general, from you know Vault of Horror to Torture Garden. There's many, and we're gonna probably do. I think we've come up with four installments of our of our an anthology episodes, and we'll do three each. So we're saving those. Uh, but Poetic Justice. Tim, I'm a massive Peter Cushing fan. I mean, that's oh, like, of course. so I'm, I, I don't know. It's like, it's hard for me. Peter Cushing, his wife had passed away. He loved her dearly. And in this film being 1972, he was a little bit older. He wasn't in, in the last legs of his life, but he was older. And he's playing a character named Arthur Grimsdyke, who's just a lonely old man who loves the kids in the neighborhood and making toys for them. And he keeps a picture of his deceased wife next to him. And he talks with her and he's got a little pet dog that he loves. And it's just, oh man, I, we're going to get into Cause Tim kind of told me it was his least favorite. And it's So tell them why it's sort of your least favorite. And I'll say why it's still, it's my favorite. I, I don't know. So I think the, the things that you love, I also love as far okay. as this one. I love Peter Cushing. I love that it really does pull at the heartstrings as far as his character, kind of the the things that occur and kind of his uh, reasoning for all of this. Of There's a young douchebag in the neighborhood that's a property guy. Isn't there always? And he's insistent that this goddamn Arthur Grimsdyke and his, his rundown house is lowering the property values in the area. So this guy makes it his life's mission to fucking dismantle and destroy every single bit of happiness in Peter Cushing's life. And every time I watch this, I want it to end differently. And I think why I love it is that Peter Cushing delivers such a layered, awesome performance. He could make you love him. The, the same man that could make you hate him as Grand Moff Tarkin, like he's an awesome actor. Like he always sells yeah. me on what he's playing. And what I like about it is the guy playing the dick is so good that I despise him. And I think, I mean, when you look at how short the tales are, this one actually, for me, 
it manages to pack emotional resonance into a small story that's kind of a run-of-the-mill story, I which think, leads to what you don't like about it. And I yeah, get that. Because I think I totally this one, it. out of all of the ones we'll probably talk about tonight, this one is the most kind of traditional come up in story that I would expect. Supernatural really, revenge. Yeah, but it really does kind of hang its coat on the the performance of Peter Cushing, um, which that I love. But taking Peter Cushing out of it and putting in yeah. somebody else that maybe I don't have that affection for, it, it's kind of a, a still your run of the mill come up in story. Yeah. I really do agree with you that certain things work because of the the actor in, in the story. And I think if you put a different actor in there, it wouldn't be my favorite. Like I, I just, for me, it stands out the most and it's in addition to something else. And, and that has to do with a gentleman named Roy Ashton and Roy Ashton and Phil Leakey were kind of the Rick Baker, Rob Bottin of the, or, or, or even a Jack Pierce for the universal movies. Um, they both, they did effects work for Hammer Films, which also bled over into the Amicus Films. And Roy Ashton was a out-of-the-kit makeup guy who would just create things with latex and cotton and stuff and uh, collodion and yarn and all sorts of shit. He created the Oliver Reed makeup for The Curse of the Werewolf. And he also created the zombies for Plague of the Zombies. Um, I think he worked next to... Phil Leakey on uh, The Curse of Frankenstein because he didn't, I don't think he did the actual uh, Christopher Lee makeup. That was Phil Leakey. But the coolest part of all of this is there. there is a creature, because I don't want to spoil the end, but there is a a zombie makeup that's in the um, the episode Poetic Justice that we're talking about. And it, it plays off the actor's features the same way Jack Pierce's makeup masterfully played off of Boris Karloff's features to create an iconic image. This image is not quite as iconic as the Frankenstein monster, but I guarantee you that that died in the wool horror fans that have never seen the 72 tales from the crypt. When you watch this movie, you're going to see the, the creature I'm talking about and you will absolutely recognize it from some website or a, a Fangoria magazine. It's been out there. Um, and it's a corpse makeup, but it's done so well and it's so haunting. And it's one of those images that like would actually kind of get to me a little when I was young because it's just so creepy and it's fleeting. I wish it was in, in the episode a little more, but what you get of it is super awesome. And there's also sort of a, a heart ripping scene that predates um, My Bloody Valentine that's also very cool. So when I look at the little gifts, the little treats that these individual stories give you. There's a few really great ones in this particular story. But yes, as Tim said, I must concede, it's a pretty <laughs> standard supernatural revenge story. It, it really is. But it leads us to another familiar story. I think most people know about the monkey's paw. What I think is cool, the, the wrinkle that Wish You Were Here, which is the fourth story, the wrinkle that Wish You Were Here adds is the fact that the people involved know the story of the monkey's paw, which makes it all the more perplexing that they decide to fuck <laughs> with this statue. So, Tim, why don't you take it away on that one? So, give, yeah. Give so people the intro. Wish You Were Here is 
uh, this woman and her husband who the the husband has kind of amassed his money by doing all of these kind of shady deals and taking advantage of people and businesses and things. And one of the things that he has is this Chinese figurine that supposedly they see on the the base of it that it can grant the user three wishes. That and sounds dangerous. Naturally, <laughs> them knowing the tale of the monkey's paw still proceed to make all the problems and missteps of the tale of the monkey's paw. And that's where the clever writing comes in. Yeah. You know, because they're aware of it. So that's part of the story. I think it's one of those, it's almost becomes like a final destination situation of they know the outcome of the monkey's paw, but by trying to get around it, they put themselves in just a different problem now. <laughs> yeah. Which I I do like this one and I do like where it goes because it seems to be just like this escalating misadventure of, oops, made the wrong wish. Whoops, made a worse wish. Whoops, yep. made the worst wish the and worst now I'm out wish. of wishes. Yeah. But yeah, that's the, I mean, look, the reason that we're, we're opening our anthology series with this one is because it is a strong anthology film. They're dated. You know, you're, you're going to see some, some interior design and decorating and, and clothing that is far more ghastly than any of the gore you're going to see. Um, there, there's some blood here and there. I mean, it's, you know, it's a PG film from 72, which really makes it way more of a PG 13 film by today's standards. Um, as I said, there's disembodied hearts. Uh, you know, there's, there's some, there's some pretty cool deaths that you wouldn't really maybe expect in a movie that you see rated PG now. But again, this is old school PG, so it's a little more adult. But yeah, we're four in, and again, you're not going to have a bored 20 minutes uh, anywhere. I would have to say the fifth story has a little more fat that could have been trimmed. You know, it, it, it actually has a little more breathing room, and and I think it's it's a more... If you guys have seen Creepshow... It's more like the crate where even though they're all pretty short, for some reason to me, when I watch creep show, the crate always seems like you yeah. could extend it into a movie. Like you could stretch it out a little and get away with it. And the fifth story is called blind alleys. Awesome fucking idea. It's, it's a little over the top, but they, all <laughs> of the stories are. So who cares? Um, you but don't I, think that all of them are master craftsmen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, do you like Blind Alleys? Is that one that grabs you? So growing up, the first time I saw Tales from the Crypt, Blind Alleys was my least favorite of the group. And I just went going back into deciding, yeah, let's rewatch it for the, the show. And I mm -hmm. was already anticipating. Yeah. And then we get to this one and we kind of limp out of the movie. Rewatching it, Blind Alleys is one of my favorite. I think Thank it's you. just because it's which the thing that I even said about the um, Poetic Justice you grow to like the characters themselves for the brief amount of time we have with them. Yeah. So the whole story is this man that takes over this home for the blind and he's now going to be in charge of it. And we he's meet like a ex-military ex guy. Yeah. And they keep reminding him throughout this, all of these uh, men who live there that this isn't the military. We're not soldiers. And he's just, well, we're going to cut costs. So we're going to cut your food and we're going to cut the lights and we're going to cut the heat and we're going to cut all this. And it's just them kind of trying to reason with him. And I really enjoy all of the the characters of all of the blind yeah. men in the, the building. There's um, a really good escalation. 
Yeah. In in the sorrow turning in the helplessness of the blind men slow you could see it slowly escalating to anger because they they draw this juxtaposition of like they're they're having dishwater with no meat in it. It's like just broth. And then they cut like right to the prick and he's eating like a three course lunch. It's not even his dinner. It's like his lunch and he's giving scraps of his steak to his dog while yeah. these dudes are starving. It, it's really, it's kind of heartbreaking. I think your, your flip on it in terms of the order of how you like the stories, I liken it to one time you and I were talking about it was Jacob's ladder, how when we're kids, you view a film a certain way. And when you're older and you've seen a little bit more of life, sometimes the things you thought were boring hit you much, much closer to the heart and like they're better. And it's really sad. Like, you know, we're getting older. My parents are, are much older than me. You know, the home doesn't seem like, you know, like seeing older people that need help from people around them and they're not being helped you know, it's like, I don't want my parents to ever be in an old age home and I don't want to be in one either, but you never know where the chips are, might fall where yeah. you could end up in a situation like that. And to have these people be blind, it's even shittier. Cause it's like, what do they do all day? Like they're just, and you see all the things that they do to try and enjoy their time together. So I'm, I, w- I always get invested in that one and it's a great ending. I think it's a really good last story for this, yeah. for this series. I I think I was about to say you don't see it coming, but I don't, I don't think that really works well with this story. Um, I think the where it goes is not what I was expecting at all, and it does right. stretch the uh, credibility the, the a credibility a little bit. I have to suspend my disbelief, but you know what? I'm on board with it. Let's In a see really it. weird way, I feel that this episode is almost like an analog ancestor to saw to the saw movies like in a weird way when you think about after you guys watch it you'll i think maybe you'll get the connection but when you look at what the the innocence how they perceive what's been done and how to level that playing field and sort of the comeuppance it's similar to the way jigsaw works in terms of how it plays out a little bit not a lot but a little bit how it's performed feels more like the collector. Agreed. And those two movies, yeah, I think Saw and the Collector are close cousins. <laughs> yeah. so. Saw is just the self-righteous version of Collector. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I guess that wraps up uh, the 1972 Tales from the Crypt. We are going to cover the companion piece, The Vault of Horror, but for anyone who likes to get a jump up on, on our, our movie talks, you know, Vault of Horror is uh, is in the mix. And sadly, Amicus never made uh, a third installment, uh, which I wish they did. It would have been called The Haunt of Fear. And it's a shame that they didn't do that because they also had a great stable of uh, British men and women actors. And I think being at the Old Witch leads the third, you know, the third series of books, it would have been really cool to have a third Amicus film with a female leading all these people through the stories. So, but we're getting into something else. We're going to unzip some body bags. Yes, our second tale this evening, Body Bags, 1993, Toby Hooper and John Carpenter. Two masters of horror. John Carpenter, director of Halloween, The Fog, 
Christine, and Memoirs of an Invisible Man. And Toby Hooper, director of Poltergeist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Together, they bring you a frightening new tale of horror. Oh, here we are. Body bag. Where in the hell did this hat come from? Nightmares of monstrous evil. He cut him up. You see? I have his eye, you know. John Carpenter takes you on a terrifying journey. I have to finish taking your grave. Into the darkness of the human soul. What's happening to me? This this is a fun one, man. So this one was the of the ones we'll talk about tonight was kind of the 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 most recent. Um, I guess you can say is this one that you remember because so body bags was uh, meant as a pilot to try to kick off a series. Do you yeah. remember this being aired? I absolutely do. Um, this is that thing where HBO really made an impact with Tales from the Crypt. It was huge. There were a lot of people that might be younger don't don't might not know that like HBO's Tales from the Crypt spawned an animated series, you know, like a Saturday morning cartoon, yep. action figures, one. all sorts of shit. So of course, Showtime. Uh, they tapped John Carpenter. They they contacted him and his then wife, who was also his producing partner. It was not Deborah Hill, uh, Sandy King. Um, so Showtime approached them, wanted them to do a a uh, anthology series just like Tales from the Crypt called Body Bags. And according to Carpenter, he thought it would be fun. He he wasn't like a hundred percent sold on it. He just thought it would be fun. And he kind of, um, he presented what he wanted to get, to get that going. And I guess, you know, his producing partner was sort of pushing on him to, to really go forward with this because they both knew tons of actors and other filmmakers. Obviously, John Carpenter is connected to a ton of different directors and everything from Wes Craven to Toby Hooper and all of that. And I guess she was tied in with um, Stacy Keach and a few other people. So what they decided to do was a three-part pilot, exactly like HBO did. And the intention was for it to be a yearly uh, series. I don't know if it was going to be six uh, episodes or eight, something like that. The end result is that John Carpenter agreed to play the host, the coroner, and Rick Baker, who was an old friend of his, actually made him up in a makeup that is very, very intentionally reminiscent of Lon Chaney Sr.'s Phantom of the Opera. And Carpenter has always stated he's not, he doesn't deem himself a very good actor, but he did say that with the makeup on and everything, it kind of freed him up and he just said, fuck it, and, and kind of ran with it. I guess he was trying to not channel uh, Beetlejuice because that's where he said his head kept going. But he, so he kind of went in a little bit more of a, of a stiffer direction than like Beetlejuice in the delivery. Anyway, the end of this little, little uh, history lesson is that the series, uh, it aired and I remember watching it. I was super stoked and it did well and people seemed to like it. It got some pretty good um, reviews and stuff. But what happened was very much like HBO did to tales in its later seasons 
Showtime right off the bat told them that they were going to go forward with the season, but they were going to move the shooting to Canada and lower the budget that they had for the initial three episodes, which is fucked. And Carpenter knew that you're not going to have the money to do what we already opened with. And his producing partner was quite annoyed that they would be outside, like far away from L.A., because being located right in L.A., they could call up friends and people that were that were yeah. names and say, hey, can you come over for like a day? Let's just shoot you for a day. They couldn't do that if it was like in Canada. So uh, the two of them bowed out and the whole thing just sort of imploded and, and they never went. It never came back, which is kind of good and kind of bad because I wish Showtime took it seriously because it could have been very cool. But in the end me and you and everyone else got kind of like an extra two short movies in, in John Carpenter's filmography and a really cool Toby Hooper one. And we get a zany whacked out original anthology movie. So do you remember seeing it on Showtime? No. So when this originally aired, I wasn't watching show. We weren't Showtime subscribers. That's all. Um, So I didn't originally see it until years later. And it was always so odd seeing John Carpenter as the coroner in this because it's like he he has fun delivery. He does a yeah. great character that I'm like, why wasn't this something that he did more of? Because right. it's just you hear about him now and it's just like, oh, he doesn't want to talk about his movies. It's kind of like the the fun, cantankerous uncle of horror that all of yeah. us have. And it's seeing this and he's just eating up everything as this coroner in the the morgue Mm. ugly man are you ugly well we all know it isn't what a person looks like it's what's inside that counts and it's rated r you know so what's kind of nice about it is it it has a tales from the crypt feel but it is a little bit more sleazy You, you know like um i mean he introduces each story from a morgue and there's just like these obvious like uh puns you know he's trying to push a a stripper's body into a dead a dead stripper he's trying he's trying to push her body into the the uh the morgue slider but her silicone breasts are are catching on the door you know and he's making like jokes about that it's it's very sophomoric humor but it's that gallows humor that's done like you said there's such excitement in his delivery it, it's just yeah. it's in your face and it's funny and like i wouldn't think of him as really like sinking his teeth into let's have some fun with a horror host character but he did great it was he nice seeing him and all the wraparound stuff yeah but yeah body bags is three stories and um i think toby hooper really wanted to direct i think he wanted to direct the hair one uh the middle story but Carpenter ended up directing that one. So if my memory is correct, uh, Hooper directs the third story. Mm-hmm. But this, man, for horror movie fans, I mean, this is something that kind of went under the radar because it was a Showtime thing. And more recently, Scream Factory put out like a killer uh, Blu-ray collector's edition. But before that, I do think it came out on regular DVD, and I think it was out maybe on Blu-ray prior to the collector's edition. But it's not something you see on many film lists, you know, of people talking about all these great actors and shit. But 
how many cameos are in this oh, fucking thing? It's, it's I mean, it's insane. how many cameos are in the first segment <laughs> yeah. alone? It's just literally, it's just people walking. So the the whole thing, the first one is called the gas station. So this woman is working at this uh, gas station. She's starting new, and she goes in and she meets uh, Robert Carradine and. He's kind of setting her up on, oh, here's the keys. Here's how do you do this. You stay inside the kind of unit here and people come and you can do their gas uh, from here and kind of turn on the pumps. And then Ash is doing the night. Everybody that walks up to this window, we have Wes Craven as some kind of creepy guy that just comes in and just kind of talks for, <laughs> for a bit. We have George Buck Flowers just walking in and, of course, like doing a awesome. very He's... like 80s bum of just like... Oh, I, I need to use the bathroom. Can I have the key? Yeah, he was in He was in They Live. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's like a John Carpenter regular. But yeah, fuck, David Naughton. Like, honestly, you get David Kessler, a.k.a. David Naughton. He's in it, and he's wonderful in it. He's just like this really nice guy who cares about her. You know, he's, he's hitting on her, but he also is concerned like about- Like, respectfully? Yeah, yeah, respectfully, exactly. Sam Raimi makes a really interesting, fun- short cameo uh he's in it but yeah i mentioned uh peter jason he comes rolling in in like his convertible with his like girlfriend or whatever it is and he has to run in and use the restroom and she's trying to pump gas and i love peter jason he's a john carpenter staple and it's just i wish there was more stuff of him getting to play like characters like this Um, i agree he's excellent and that's what i here's something that i think is really gonna shock people in a good way If you are like a John Carpenter fan, this first story, the gas station story, it's, it has every hallmark of a great John Carpenter movie. Granted, it's a short film. It might not have, you know, quite the amount of, um, I guess, building to something great because it is short. Yeah. But you get some choice John Carpenter, like camera angles, the score is really good. Um, all of these performances, like, you know, I can't say that um, Wes Craven is like an excellent thespian, but he he plays his part well enough. And they cram all of this, like, it's almost like you're her trapped in this little glass in- enclosure and all these different freak shows are coming up to you and talking to you and stuff. And they keep playing off of every time she has to go outside she almost like forgets a key. Like they kind of push that where you're like, don't forget those damn keys. You know, yeah. that's like something that plays into it. And it involves a killer. It involves a, a crazed killer at a gas station at night. And um, it's good. It's really good. I love how they get Robert Carradine in there. You guys will know him as like Louis Skolnick from uh, Revenge of the Nerds. He's part of the Carradine acting family, but he's a really good actor and he carries yeah. I think he carries this segment very well. And it's bloody. You get some gore. There's yeah. some gore in this sucker. And uh, I like how John Carpenter kind of apes himself in this by doing some like Halloween shots mm. of things popping up in the background or like. Without a doubt, that's it. Yeah. There. So that's great. And I just love like, we don't have a lot of time with her, but Alex Datcher, um, who plays the the woman working in the gas station. It's like you have 28 minutes to introduce this character, make her Laurie Strode, turn her into a final girl, and yeah. kind of do this. And it it works. Because by the end of it, you're like, okay, yeah, I, I like her. I didn't need any more for this to kind of complete its arc. Yeah, and this this was at a time, I mean, I love Carpenter. He's like my favorite horror director, pound for pound. 
but he did have one of those weird fucking dips in his career, just like all the other horror directors that Tim and I love. And when you look at like 1993, even though this is like a short film from an anthology called Body Bags, it's one of his better films like from that era. I, I think it is. So yeah, I agree. Uh, I always enjoy rewatching that one. And we jump right from that back to John Carpenter as the coroner, as he pulls another body out and gives you a bunch of quippy one-liners and shit. And then we're treated to a tour de force from Stacy Keach, like for real. I, so in the second story here, I forgot how just genuinely funny this one is. And Stacy so Keach's fun. performance. Do you want to explain the the plot to our our dear listeners there, Mike? Stacy Keach is a man who cares very much about appearances, and he's got a lovely lady at home that loves him, uh, but his hair is thinning, and it is getting deep into his fucking brain. He he just can't he can't deal with it. <laughs> no, he's that's got, later. <laughs> well, yeah, it's that's not true. <laughs> uh, getting ahead of myself here. Uh, it starts, you know, it's plaguing him. He, he's He's totally just fixating on his hair thinning and he's starting to notice people with long flowing thick heads of hair. Um, One of them is actually a hysterical (laughs) cameo from Greg Nicotero, who is part of the KNB effects group who went off on his own and is now, you know, heading up the the walking dead series. It it Um, was such a funny segment though. It's a great segment. he walks outside and he looks at the woman with the long hair and you yeah. think he's just looking at this girl. And then all of a sudden it's like, he's, no, he's, he's just, <laughs> he's looking at her hair. At and then all hair. of a sudden like Greg Nicotero walks by with this like flowing head of hair. And he's walking a little dog. Yeah. And it's all shot, you know, like a Fabio commercial from, from the eighties. It, you know, it's bright, sunny day and the camera will always slow down a little and you just see Nicotero was always, his calling card was sort of like his really long blonde hair. So he's like, flipping it around and shit. <laughs> and you see St- Stacy Keach is really good in this. He's just getting like fired up, you know, he's like, Ugh! and then like he'll, he'll walk to a different location and he's talking to his, his hairdresser and his hairdresser is this young, attractive kid whose hair is just like a giant helmet. You know, it's all up in the air yeah. and, and flowing. And the guy's telling him we could cut it this way. We could comb it over this way. We could style it like this. And he's whining to his girlfriend and she's just like, honey, I love you for who you are. He's like, you say that now, but, but you're going to leave me. You know, you, you just wait, you just wait till I'm a bald man, you know, all this stuff. So he goes through the the typical bullshit. He, he tries the, um, basically like a shoe polish, uh, mixture in his hair. He's trying the comb over. He's doing all these different things. And then he happens upon the lovely blondie, Debbie Harry, and the absolutely amazing David Warner. And um, it's a commercial, I'm pretty sure he sees on TV. <laughs> yep. um, and he goes to the Roswell Institute. To, uh, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, to to try this um, absolutely incredible immediate hair transplant technology uh, that is just going to change his life. As David Warner says, it works so good, I bought the company. And it works. It works so well that um, he kind of can't stop his hair from growing and it keeps going and it keeps growing. It's and very Jordy Verrill. Yes. It, it's almost like Jordy Verrill by way of Lionel, the, the dog boy, you know, from the, the old <laughs> PT Barnum circus. Um, but yeah, uh, it's <laughs> this one. 
the, like the first story is, I, I would say pretty serious with a, with a little bit of humor, but, it, but it's on the very much a serious tone. And like Jordy Verl, as, uh, as Tim mentioned, this is the comedic middle story. Um, it's played up for laughs, but without giving it away, you are treated to some actually c- kind of uh, more disturbing than you would expect. Yeah. Th- it really gets under your skin uh, in many different ways. And I think people that are creeped out by what is that phobia of holes in, oh, in skin? Um, I don't know the, t- the, the tryptophobia or something. Yeah, something like that. It isn't holes in his skin, but it kind of is. There's there's some weird shit that ends up happening um, related to him and, and this hair transplant. So as the story progresses, it gets darker. And I think keeping that comedic tone while it, while it's getting really dark actually makes it a little creepier than it might have been. And it ends with like a really funny twist that I, I think is a good one. It, yeah. Although for the most comedic of the three, this one ends up having like, if you really think about the, the repercussions and yeah. after this story, it's like, this is the darkest one of the three. Yeah, it really is. But yeah, people that like sci-fi, and horror, like body horror. I think if you like body horror, you'll probably love the, the middle story. Yeah. Because it, it's super good. If you watched um, the episode of Cabinets of Curiosity and you saw Aloe Glow and you yes. wanted... <laughs> <laughs> this feels very much like that. Yeah. This is Aloe Glow's grandmother. <laughs> like, basically. Um, now, I always confuse this story with Hell to Pay or Hell to Pay from Amazing Stories, the movie, mm-hmm. um, about the the hair piece that like takes over the guy's body and it's causing him to kill and all of yeah. that. So I was, for some reason, remembering Stacey Keach having that in this. Oh, no um, shit. So when I started watching, it started coming back to me and I was like, oh, no, it's this one <laughs> yeah, with David yeah. Warner. Well, when you've watched as many anthologies over the years as you and I have, as I was joking earlier... It seems that there's only like four or five ways to tell an <laughs> anthology story. So yeah, sometimes things do cross over. Um, there's an amicus story about like a a cursed fabric. You know, it's like there's these different like they they take the same idea but they put a different item in place of it, kind of yeah. thing. But yeah, so so far body bags we're we're batting two for two. You know, there's three of them, and I think the first two are excellent little stories. Um, what do you think how, of the third one? Yeah, well, what, what do you think? Of oh, what do I think? Oh, okay, yeah, I'll yeah, go first. <laughs> I I love Mark Hamill. I had a feeling. I think this story is the weakest of the three. Me too. I always, when I rewatch this film, I always think that it's going to hit me better, like the fifth time around, the yeah. sixth time around. And there are things about this story that I love. I just think it is so run of the mill in terms of what the story is. And this is one that I don't mind spoiling for people because we're not going to spoil what happens in the end. But the concept is Mark Hamill, who's great, even though he is not doing the best job of sometimes having a Southern accent a a little (laughs) bit, I guess. I'm not sure. He's a baseball player and um, he's very full of himself. And baseball is his deal. And he ends up getting into an accident 
where he loses an eye and he flips the fuck out because he's not going to be able to play baseball. And an old 1950s actor, uh, John Agar, makes an appearance as an older doctor opposite the wonderful Roger Corman, uh, who is also a, a, a 50s film director, 50s up till now, actually. The guy's made more movies than anyone. Uh, but the two of them play doctors in, in this one. And there are great things in this episode. But what ends up happening is he gets a tra- uh, an experimental transplant of an eyeball so that he can see again. And of course it works. But the eyeball was taken from a less than desirable source. And for some unexplained fucking reason, he starts seeing visions and wanting to do things that the man that owned the eye previously did. It's an Abby normal eye. Yes. And, (laughs) you know, there's a movie called um, Body Parts with Jeff Fahey. Uh, That's the one I was trying to think of. Um, Wasn't there one where somebody gets a hand or something? Exactly. I think Brad Dorif gets a hand or a leg. Or no, he. I think Brad Dorif gets a leg, and uh, um, the lead guy gets gets the hand. It's an arm, I think, an arm. But the weird thing about it is, I'm sometimes when it's a simple story like that, I want consistency, and I don't really think there's a consistent uh, like explanation or or like actions that occur. Like he's getting these flashbacks. But then he also is just like wanting to kill his wife and shit. And I don't, it's, it's just a little too sloppy. I, I don't know why I think it's sloppy. This is the story that needed the breathing room. Cause I feel like yeah. they spend so much time with the setup of him getting the eye that then it's, he's seeing the visions. And by the time he finally decides it's like full need, tilt like, immediately, it's the eye. I need to figure out what it is. Let me go find out where it came from. Let me go do some research. It's one scene for about like 10 seconds of him finding out about the eye, 10 seconds of him doing research and realizing, oh my God, that's what it is. And then it just like, seems like it jump cuts to, oh, well, we need to wrap this thing up. We're coming up on 94 minutes. And it does end, um, you know, on like a shock moment, but it's not like, it's, it's exactly what you would have expected. It doesn't really do anything different. And I agree with you, Tim, that the way they try and interject, like that there are like a religious couple and there's like all this Bible reading stuff mixed in, but then there's these visions of like dead women and all this stuff. It all happens so fast that if you let it breathe a little, and I almost would like to have seen almost like the big payoff, like the, the, the moment being him realizing, like finding out where the eye came from, like you could yeah. have made what's happening to him, a little more subtle and over a longer period of time, maybe he's having crazy dreams. Like a stir of echoes thing. Yeah, where it's, they make it so blunt and so like hitting you over the head with it that it kind of just, I don't know. I, I, I don't really like his wife's reactions and I don't really like what his character does. It, it's very forced. Yeah. It's like, we need to get from point A to the end, like right now. It, it seems like they told Toby like, you have 21 minutes to do right. the entirety of this. And it's like, okay, subtlety's out the window. We got to use a sledgehammer on this story. And that's not to say it's a bad story. No. I enjoy watching it because there's two or three great moments of gore. There's a couple of good, like, I guess, um, you know, sequences where you get to kind of see 
I, I like Mark Hamill and it's nice oh, to kind of see yeah, him absolutely. chewing the scenery. I think he's real good when he's got the crazy bloodshot eye and he's like freaking the fuck out and, yeah. and stuff. He That's a cool sequence. And I, I love the fact that you get some cameos from some cool people. But other than that, it, it is sort of a weaker. This should have been sandwiched in the middle. I think it's the perfect choice for the middle story. Yeah. And not leaving it with the last. That's your palette cleanser that like you're left with that at the end yeah so although how this ends not to give away anything on a completely unrelated side note were you a fan of the ray miland film the man with the x-ray eyes love that movie i love it watching this again reminded me of that i was like you know i need to go back and watch that and that's my point with this and the ending of that is still like chilling to this day for me i was like oh yeah so without us giving shit away all we're saying is you've pretty much seen every aspect of that story done in other things and kind of done better for the most part. But if you are a Star Wars fan, because I feel I feel like Star Wars and then the animated Joker, th- those are where Mark Hamill has his fan base. my Joker. Um, so if you're a fan of either of those things that are Mark Hamill related, it is kind of rare to see him in a genre offering and he's in this one and he's good in it. So yeah. that's cool. There's so few movies I can think of other than Star Wars for him because it's like, it's this, it's Guyver from the 90s. <laughs> oh yeah, I um, forgot that. <laughs> and then I, it's just like, oh yeah, animated series for Batman. He's like the best Joker and then yeah. skips in regular show as the uh, the Yeti. Um, and, and because it's 93, he has this perfect, like, like stereotypical uh, baseball pitcher look. He's got the little thin mustache. <laughs> and, he, you know, uh, again, because of 93, you know, his pants are up a little higher than most men wear their pants now. And his shirts are always, like, tucked very tightly in. So it has this, like, fun... Kind of like, um, could you look any any goofier? You know, it's, it's he's got that sort of suburban look, like hardcore. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Going uh, going down the line, it, it was hard for Tim and I to pick which three to do first. We found ourselves in a situation where a lot of these anthologies have elements that mimic the other ones, and we were trying to find like a nice mix. We could not separate titles, so. We we opened with Tales from the Crypt, and we're closing with Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. So it's double tales with a body bags in between. Um, <laughs> and Tim and I grew up on the TV show, so oh we, yes, yeah, we we have some deep love for Tales from the Dark Side. I had a dollar every time I brought up the Cuddy Black Sow episode on this. It's a good one. So yeah, here we are with Tales from the Dark Side, the movie from Stephen King. Originator of Pet Cemetery. Michael McDowell, creator of Beetlejuice. And George Romero, director of Night of the Living Dead. Comes four tales of horror. Don't make light of it. Tales from the Dark Side. The movie, rated R. Directed by John Harrison, who also created the amazing score. It's one of my favorite movie scores. Uh, he did the music for the original Creep Show. He wrote it on a keyboard by himself in a hotel room while they were shooting 
uh, Creep Show, which is pretty fucking awesome because yeah. I love the Creep Show score. And Tim and I both adore Day of the Dead, and he is responsible for yeah. Day of the Dead too. So Day uh, of the Dead is one of my favorite horror scores. So he's a great composer. Is he a great director? Uh, that remains to be seen. We'll talk about this movie, and and we'll figure that out. And also, uh, Debbie Harry is in sixty six point six percent of the films on this episode. <laughs> I must say, she kicks ass in this one. She's really oh, yeah. good in she's good in body bags, but she doesn't have a lot to do. But I love her in this one because I'm a big Blondie fan. Oh, a thousand percent. So we get introduced to Debbie Harry, kind of traveling through this small little idyllic town. Uh, headed back to her house and making dinner plans with friends and, oh, come on over later and we'll do this. And then she casually opens up part of her wall where you see there is like a dungeon with a very young Matthew Lawrence chained in there because she is kind of a Hansel and Gretel style witch. Um, (laughs) And she's just giving him a book, giving him some cookies and just kind of fattening him up so she can prep him for dinner later. (laughs) I normally calculating out, he, like, <laughs> I love the scene of asking, like, the math. He's, yes. His <laughs> math. He's like, well, yeah, if you do 12, this, carry the... And he's doing the math, and then he realizes that he's doing the math because she's trying to figure out how long he to needs cook to bake. Him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's like, okay, so we have to put you in the oven by uh, 1.30. And again, you, you know, we were talking about how a good wraparound really enhances a film and this one is great it's 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 not it's not groundbreaking i mean like tim said it's hansel and gretel basically but you get to see debbie harry playing you know like a sexy suburban witch and matthew lawrence you know i'm not one to want to see children chained up and then uh, fattened up with cookies and, and and baked but he's so grating the kid is like a like he's fingernails on a chalkboard. He's he's just so sweet and annoying that I can't help it, but I want her to to cook him. <laughs> I don't know. I thought like he was kind of endearing. That yeah, it's like, I guess he's this little like kind of streetwise young kid that he's nice, but he's not dumb. So it's him constantly trying to figure out like, okay, uh, yeah, what's my yeah. play here? He wins um, me over by the end. Oh yeah, I, I, like, I like where his character goes. But the way he's all like, let me read you from this book. And I know that he has no um, he has no choice. He's a written character. So that's what he's got to do. Yeah. But but well, he's got this thick book of stories that for some reason she doesn't remember the stories from them. But it's her book, I guess. Yeah. Because she's like, know. oh, I haven't read those in years. And he's like, oh, let me read some. Yeah. And this was um, I think we've touched on this in the past. There's a lot of um, DNA with this film that that is connected to Creepshow and obviously Tales from the Dark Side, the TV series. And there was a bunch of legal rights that that occurred, some some things that didn't jive correctly. And this was sort of supposed to be Creepshow 3. There is a Creepshow 3 that is a bad film that has nothing to do with George Romero or anyone else. But Tales from the Dark Side became a a popular t- like horror TV show that was connected to George Romero and some other people from Creepshow. And so they decided if we can't get Creepshow off the Creepshow three off the ground, let's take one of the leftover Stephen King stories that he had written to be used either in Creepshow one or two or three or whatever. And it, it pulls a couple other stories that are not Stephen King and it all kind of comes together as Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, which is a rare thing in and of itself that 
a TV show ends up getting a movie version of it, you would expect there to maybe be a TV movie. But this was yeah. an in theaters movie. Did you you didn't catch this in the movie theater, did you? Uh no, I was probably five on cable months. or something. Oh shit, nineteen ninety, <laughs> huh? I was I was uh, on the back end of nineteen eighty nine. You're so. a spring chicken, you are. <laughs> As long as I don't have to do anything involving my back, my knees, my joints, my memory. Um, But other than that. So, yeah, like we we didn't see this originally. I didn't even realize there was a Tales from the Dark Side movie because we grew up on the show. Right. Because Tales from the Crypt was that was too much. That was too blue. So we couldn't do Tales (laughs) from the Crypt. So we did a lot of like, okay, what, what are the alternatives that are kind of okay for us? Tales from the Dark Side, we got Monsters, we got like classic Twilight Zone. Yeah. That when I finally found out that they had this movie, like I was surprised. I thought, oh, so it's like a Tales from the Crypt situation of this was the movie that kicked off the series and never realized that it was just the this other way odd around. non sequitur yeah. of like, nope, it's it just happened in the middle of that. And we may have touched on this in the past, but in case we didn't, I cannot think of an opening to a TV show that scared me. <laughs> that chills like, your bones. <laughs> like Tales from the Dark Side. I remember Sundays at my grandmother's house, that show being on. And when the color gets drained and the yep. silly, it just, it really made me scared as a kid. And that music change uh, oh, and all God, of a sudden you're so just like, good. ooh. Man lives in the sunlit world of what he believes to be reality. There is, unseen by most, an underworld. A place that is just as real, but not as brightly lit. A dark side. dark side like so good so good but yeah so here we are with what i think is a black sheep of the of the anthology world um it, i do feel like many of these oddball late 80s early 90s movies they are finding a brand new life on on like boutique label blu-ray where uh in streaming like shutter and everything a lot more people are seeing these movies than, than they saw 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And I don't know. I, I've played Tales from the Dark Side for a lot of different like film nerds that I tattoo simply because the cast is stacked with so many people that went on to do other things, um, bigger, much bigger things. And we'll get to those people as we get through the episodes. Um, yeah, because I think the the difference between this and say like a body bags is the Body Bags cast is stacked, but it's stacked with all of like genre favorites and things yeah. that you're going to watch and be like, oh, I love all of these characters or all of these people from all of my favorite horror. This one's stacked with people that it's just not specifically people you'd recognize as like, oh, these are horror people. There's it's, a few A-listers in yeah. here. <laughs> it's like yeah. Academy Award nominees and things like that involved in this film. So the tone, would you um, say... Would you say playful? Yeah, I think I would say Because it playful. is. It, it's dark, but it's not like, it's not go for the throat like horror. Even though it is absolutely a horror movie, I, I don't think it's like 
it has a playful tone that that I, I rather enjoy. I think it gives it an identity of its own. It makes sense as far as being something like a in a creep show vein, just because it is there's gore to it. Yes, there's violence. Yes, there's dark content, but it's always done with almost like tongue firmly planted in cheek that it never comes across as like a a dour film. It's just like you said, it's always has this almost kind of playfulness to it, even though it's, oh, this person just got cut open and stuffed with something, but yeah. it's not horrific. It's almost kind of like winking at you of like, that's pretty, it's pretty gnarly, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it cuts, uh, there's sort of a diversity in the stories too, which I think is smart. Um, and I feel like these are, it's billed as four ghoulish fables in one modern nightmare, but it really, it, it's three stories and the wraparound. It, it's yeah. a little presumptuous the way they present four stories. I mean, I guess it is, but I always sort of take Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, as a triple, a, a triple build anthology, just like Body Bags. Um, the first, like, genuine story is a doozy. A wonderful little story. And what, what's that, Tim? That is Lot 249 uh, with Christian Slater, Steve Buscemi, and Julianne Moore. As three, we said, a three big stacked names. cast. Christian Slater just crushing the 80s and 90s um, at this point. But the whole thing is these two kind of best pals and his sister, and they're at this college. And Christian Slater has this other friend, this kind of, odd peculiar guy played by steve buscemi who got into this college (laughs) yeah bellingham Bellingham is his name who made his money to get into the college by kind of reselling all of these historical artifacts and all of these hard to find things and he's constantly has all these kind of odd little effigies and little statues and little knickknacks and things that he's turning out and working at the museum he's Um, like the indiana jones american picker you know, he's, he, <laughs> yeah. he gets out there and he's he's got his Zuni fetishes and all of his different stuff. It's he's like got if a Indiana Jones was on Storage Wars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just like that. Um, and you can see this is very early in Steve Buscemi's career, but... You know, he he is such a gifted actor. There's just like I actually think Kristen Slater has he has a charisma which is undeniable. And I I can't say I don't like Christian Slater. I like him, but he kind of just sort of channels a young Jack Nicholson. Like I don't necessarily <laughs> think Christian Slater. No, you're a very, right. He's not a good actor, but he's a good presence, if that makes sense. So I I don't mind him in this doing his young Jack Nicholson. But when you see him playing a scene against Steve Buscemi, Buscemi's fucking killing it. I mean, his character he he imbibes so much dimension and and emotion in into bellingham that he he just stands out as a gifted actor and i i love this story it's so fun i was gonna say so as far as steve buscemi so his whole character in this watching this again really made me feel like if we didn't end up having the herbert west that we got in reanimator I think Steve Buscemi would end up having kind of a fun take on it because he it's this. He would have been a great Herbert West. Yeah, he has this kind of like not nerdiness, but like smarminess, while also being. It's like how are you the the nerd, but then also you're kind of a bully, but also. <laughs> yeah, it's a trio of rich kids 
that Christian Slater as Andy is not a dick. He's like a nice guy, but his best friend Lee is a total asshole. And his sister, Susan, uh, Susan played by Julianne Moore in, in her er, one of her earliest roles, I think they are the silver spoons, you know, they're, they're, they don't work for what they have. And, um, Julianne Moore knows that that Bellingham has a crush on her and all this bullshit. And it's sort of set up to where there's a Primrose Fellowship, I think is what it's called. It, yeah. you know, like a, and basically it's stolen away from Buscemi. And that sucks because he was sort of banking on that, you know, to, to get through school and do what he needed to do. Where Tim was saying that he's kind of a bully as well. He knows he's intellectually superior to these people. And since they're always pushing their physical prowess and, and their, uh, their standing at the college and the popular kids, there is sort of this equal battle, um, between, you know, wits and, and like status kind of thing. Um, and it turns into a really crazy situation when they try to oust Steve Buscemi and someone planted like a stolen artifact in his collection and then tipped off the school. So he ends up getting expelled, but only after he receives this special lot in, in the mail is delivered to him. And what's inside and of this inside box? lot 249 is a fresh mummy or as fresh as a mummy can get. So it's this old kind of uh, decrepit mummy that as he says, it's like, you're going to cut into the mummy and get into the inside. Well, yeah, the outside is just like thousand years of dry rot. Yeah. So he cuts into it and then it's, oh, well, there's a scroll with it too. And we can yeah, he didn't want the, the incantation. mummy. He wanted yeah. the scroll, not the mummy. So they end up, or rather he ends up reciting the scroll. And then as you can probably tell uh, in as stories go like this, that the mummy comes to life. It's but very for what reason? Yeah, it's very much a riff on the Gollum story or the Cabinet of Doctor Caligari. You know, you've got a a man who is small in stature who's been slighted, and now he has a reanimated brawn, an enforcer. And what would a what would a jilted man do if he had that power? Um, yeah, I have to weigh in on one thing: the effects team that worked on this film be mentioning them a couple of times in this episode is KNB effects. Uh, that is Howard Berger, Greg Nicotero and Robert Kurtzman. They've since sort of parted ways, although they're all still friends, but they were active in the late eighties uh, throughout the nineties. And I have to say that this film was something where I have often talked about practical effects, people that were hungry and also devoted to horror. And they they really, during this period in time, a lot of these effects houses went above and beyond the call, probably lowballed the jobs just because they wanted to innovate and do some really cool shit. And there are three key effects in each of these stories, but I gotta say, this is my favorite modern cinematic incarnation of a mummy. I love, it, it isn't necessarily like accurate, you know, like in a historical yeah. sense, it's, it's tweaked from what a real mummy would look like, but it's so gnarly and it's so cool looking. And the mummy is so imposing and powerful. And I love the mummy in this. I think he's awesome. And yeah, this mummy gets sent out to kind of do the bidding of Bellingham. We're not going to tell you what those specific things are, but 
they're kind of uh, carried out in ways that might be very personal to how the mummy was killed and preserved. He might take some of those concepts, some of the things that any of you archaeology fans out there might know a little bit about how mummies are made. He might use some of those implements and some of those techniques uh, on the people that have wronged Bellingham. And it's a very cool atmospheric story. There's some there's some really nice uh, shadow-based uh, camera angles, you know, and things moving in the hallways and stuff like that. I think it's got a, a it's got a really firm handle on like a, a nice, almost a film noir, like horror tale. Yeah. I, I, I enjoy this story and it does go for the darkly comedic gusto in the final act of its short running time. Yeah. I think like this, like we mentioned before, this feels very creep show as far as how all of this plays out. Yeah. Um, right down to, I mean, it's the, oh, from the first creep show, Leslie Nielsen, Ted Danson. Oh, um, uh, something to tide you over. Something to tide you over. Um, it feels very in the vein of that. So I don't know how you feel about the second story in Tales of the Dark Side. I know it's your least favorite of the three. <laughs> it's, I do know that. Yeah. It's my least favorite of the three. Um, but it is interesting to see... Buster Poindexter fight yeah. a cat. And for older people like me, it goes further than that. David Johansson is Buster Poindexter. That's the feeling hot, hot, hot guy. But I remember him growing up as one of the, the lead members of the New York Dolls, which was a drug-addled, sex-crazed glam rock band from New York City uh, that made a huge impact on on glam metal and uh after the New York Dolls demise, he kind of disappeared. I think he might have done some stand-up comedy or some stuff like that. But he really did sort of reinvent himself as this persona, this this gigolo uh, uh, crooner named Buster Poindexter with a big massive pompadour. And then he kind of reinvented himself again as David Johansson and appeared in a bunch of movies. And yeah. he's actually like a pretty good actor. Um a little over the top, like all the time. I, yeah, I, I think, think that's inherent to who he is. He's definitely memorable in this, and I absolutely he's memorable in Scrooged. Yeah, for sure. But this is a fucking weird story. It It's actually in a... <laughs> there's an element that is not pertinent to today's society, but there is an element that is that deals with like opioid type drug uh like a drug family and and selling of of these pills and stuff like that that aren't really good um and they do a lot of testing on cats and it's yeah. kind of a riff on on an Edgar Allan Poe story the black cat you know at, um William Hickey who I have joked about how he just always seems like he was old um he plays uh, <laughs> Drogon who's this little withered old man in a wheelchair who absolutely despises this cat that his sister, I think, took in. And he's positive that this cat is a murderous being that's out to get him. So he fucking hires a hitman to kill this cat. <laughs> that, that, that is the premise. The cat from hell. And it, it's actually written by Stephen King. And Which, we're, you know, we're treated to a weird story. It's like this weird twisted version of Mousetrap of just all the damage and all the things involved and all of the misadventures of trying to kill this cat, that it's very dark, 
but also the absurdity of just the plot itself kind of lightens it up yeah. of how how many people have died trying to kill a cat. Yeah, really. <laughs> I can't deny that, like, when I first saw the movie, I saw it in the movie theater, and then the next seven or eight times I watched it after that, it's always been my least favorite one. But over the years, I actually have kind of warmed up to it to, to see a lot of good in it. Um, I know I was mentioning to you when we were putting these films together that uh, there's some stylistic stuff going on in this story, like behind the camera, that's actually pretty cool. And a lot of it deals with, um, there's sequences where uh, William Hickey is telling, he's telling the hitman sort of the history of some things from the past and everything kind of turns to like very bright Bava-esque blue lighting. And he's telling the story and the sisters that are no longer with him suddenly appear. And it's, it's part of this history of the family. And I had recently learned from listening to the commentary that they actually did all that shit in camera where they would move things out of the way and then change the lighting live and then move the actors in to create this sort of, let me tell you a tale kind of thing. And when you start appreciating that sort of stuff, yeah, I, I do see more merit in the story than I originally had found. I think what it is is that the payoff in a in a gorehound practical effect way, the payoff to this story is fucking chef's kiss. It's really good, and I love it. It's I just like think they it's wrote the, that, and then they backtracked, and, they wrote, and they're yeah, like, what do we write around, around this so we can end on this? Totally agree. So what you're left with is 25 minutes, maybe, of, of like mediocre to decent buildup with a really good payoff. As opposed to if you could have just peppered a couple of like really great scenes before it, I think you would have had like a more solid story. But it is the middle of the movie and it does serve you up some feline carnage in in the last moments that leads you into the third tale quite seamlessly. So that's it's kind of at least it ends on an upswing. But yeah, most people will probably almost be bored, but then it picks up right before you're bored. Yeah. Which the the third story, like I know we were talking about it earlier and I was talking about it in terms of Tales from the Crypt, how rewatching one that originally I wasn't a big fan of and then kind of switching my mind on it. That happened to me with the third story, Lover's Vow. And as far as like the, the cat from hell goes and whatnot, I think it's my least favorite of the trio doesn't mean that it's a bad story or dislike the story. It's just like if you have three things One's got to be the the least of the three. Of course. Um, but I think Lover's Vow has kind of taken the the front spot for me in Tales from the Dark Side as far as my my favorite story overall for this one. Yeah. Well, because the first two have standout elements. Like, I think the mummy is really great and the the whole Buscemi performance is really great in the first one. You do get an awesome payoff in the second one. But I agree, this third story... It's probably the best story. I actually feel that it's it's definitely cribbed from an old legend. I want to say a Japanese ghost story. I can almost remember the title of the story, but it's a piece of Japanese folklore that involves, um, I think it's a man who goes into the woods and meets a woman. And I'll just sort of leave it at that because I don't want to spoil what it is. Um, but it definitely has its roots in, in a 
piece of, of Japanese folklore, um, like a ghost story. And this is not, this is not a ghost story. They, they definitely tweak that, but it stars Ajax from, uh, <laughs> from fucking the warriors. Um, James Remar, also Dexter's dad, um, Lord Raiden, if you watched Mortal yes. Kombat Annihilation. And the lovely Ray Don Chong, uh, who I think was a pretty big deal in 1990. You know, that was kind of the height of, of her being in a bunch of, of good movies. Because that was, I think, shortly after Commando or shortly Yeah, right around Commando there. And-, and then Robert Klein, for anyone who's familiar with, like, old-style comedy. I think you'll know Robert Klein. He's a very recognizable face. But yeah, this is... Uh, this is a cool freaking story. Yeah, so James Remar uh, is Preston. We open up with him kind of working on his art and trying to find the next thing. And then Standard he gets the, failed artist. He's got yeah. that, that all that vibe to him. And then he gets a call that the there's somebody waiting for him at the bar, and he knows, yep, it's my agent. I have to go meet him. And he goes down to this bar, and he gets essentially broken up with by his agent because he says, like, if I'm not selling things, like, I, I can't live off of nothing. Ten, and he tells ten, him, like... 10% of nothing is, is nothing. <laughs> yeah, he's like, like, and that. I can't live off 10% of nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so they go their separate ways. And then he kind of closes the place down in his melancholy with the his other friend Maddox. That is kind of another bar goer that's there that's kind of passed out drunk. So him and the bartender go out back because he needs to use the bathroom and he's going to head on home and the bartender's getting things together to take off. And there's this form that kind of sweeps down. And before they notice anything, it takes the bartender's hand off and then kind of yeah. takes him apart and takes his head off and then grabs <laughs> like full, yeah, full like, on screen decapitation. It's yeah. good. It's really good. And then when James Remar sees it, it's this kind of fleshy gargoyle. It looks at him and tells him, you're right. Exchange for a promise. You got it. If I let you go, you must swear you'll never see you saw me. Never see you heard me speak. Never tell anyone how I look. Never repeat what I have said. A promise forever. You gotta be kidding. I, I promise. Cross your heart. I promise. And then it kind of slashes him and then just takes off. And now he's <laughs> kind of figuring out, oh, okay, what where do I go from here? Yeah. yeah. Like, what? So that's when he ends up running into Ray Don Chong because he's kind of just sprinting off because now there's a body at this alley for the bartender. He can't tell anyone about this. He doesn't even know what he just saw. And he runs into her and it's, okay, well. She's uh, lost or something, right? Yeah. Maybe? And it's, uh, like come back to my place and um, I, I let you use the phone. You can come back here and we'll figure out what to do next. And then they end up kind of hitting it off while they're there as she kind of helps him with his wounds. And they just kind of get to talking and then it decides, you know what? Stay the night. It's too late now. You won't find a cab, yada, yada. And through a friend of a friend, she's like visiting friends or something in the city, I think. But she happens to like mention in passing that... Um, a friend of her friend is a, a curator and like, I think she says the person's first name and then he fills in the the, the blank with the yeah. last name. And it's like the biggest, you know, uh, gallery ever. And, and they introduce, you know, he gets in. It, suddenly his life is like looking up ever since he met this girl. 
And doesn't it fast forward? I think it fast forwards. Yeah, because it, it kind of time. transitions through their relationship of, okay, well, now they they met. Now they're kind of becoming lovers. And then it's, oh, okay, well, now they kind of developed a relationship. They're getting in. He's on the upswing in the art world. And now they're kind of years later and they have a family and they have two kids and it's everything's the agent's great. back. And yeah. And now the, he, the agent even says Wyatt ends up saying like, oh, I was able to talk him into bringing me back in because who yeah. else is going to babysit your kids? Because he took them out for Halloween and it seems yeah. like, okay, everybody's kind of a unit again and everything's going great. Yeah, his art's selling like crazy and, uh, and he's doing great. And on their anniversary, how many years is it? Do you I remember? think 10. I think it's a 10 year anniversary. On his anniversary, he decides that he wants to give her the one thing he's never given her. And that's the truth about the night they met. Now we've both established for you guys that this insanely wonderful, practical effect, gigantic gargoyle told him to never utter a word. Now I only told you that he's going to tell her. So I'm not going to tell you if he does tell her. And if he does, you would imagine that this gargoyle is probably going to show up and kill him. Um, and we'll kind of leave it at that, where it is called Tales from the Dark Side, so you know something bad's going to happen, but we're not going to tell you what or how. It we're doesn't kill him, of... it just kicks in the window, socks him one right in the stomach, and then just leaves. <laughs> yeah, it screams at him and makes him eat five dozen uh, uh, White Castle burgers, you know, with no break. Um, <laughs> it ruins yeah. his name in the yeah. art world, that he can't keep a secret. But But it's a cool situation, you know. Is there a gargoyle that's going to come and kill his wife and kids and say, now, now you've done it. How's that? You know, is it going to knock his hands off and say, good luck painting? We don't know, but there will, there will be repercussions if he opens his trap. So we'll kind of talk a little bit about why the episode's great aside from not telling you the ending. I, I think the characters are pretty well written and I love the atmosphere of it. I, I can't get over how much I... I kind of mentioned that the first film, the the first segment, it kind of channels a little bit of like, um, like a German expressionist, uh, almost film noir vibe with like some of the shadows and stuff. And I do think that this one, uh, James Remar's character just sort of drips with that like film noir quality. You know, he could very easily be a detective or a down and out cop. Yeah as much as he's, or a gambler, as much as he's an artist. He's got kind of the greasy hair. It looks like however often he showers, his hair still has a lot of pomade in it, you know, and he definitely drinks whiskey and there's a lot of cigarettes burning. And it has like um like a noirish quality that, again, I like it. And it makes it kind of connected to this movie. Yeah, it really feels like he can exist in the world of like um, Barker's Lord of Illusions. Of, yeah. Um, What's his name? Scott Bakula playing the detective Harry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lord of illusions for sure. Yeah. That it's just the, a lot of these very smoky, I don't know if it's New York city or if it's supposed to take place in New York city, but it's a lot of these like cold blue and gray smoky streets and all of this, that it does really have this interesting look to it throughout. Even though thinking back, a majority of it just takes place. It's either like the bar, yep. the alley yep, or Mostly. his house in various incarnations. Yeah, it's mostly interiors, but again, you know, these movies, I want, I want listeners to know that a lot of the stuff you're watching from this era, all that fresh, you know, impressive, 
uh, very unique voiced films. A lot of these movies were made even in the even in the time frame they they were made on a low budget. I mean, I'm sure this movie is is a few million dollars. It's not like we're talking it was made for $100,000. It was in the millions, but it wasn't like a, a $50 million production, like a big deal. This was like George Romero and a, and a bunch of, of hardworking independent filmmakers coming together and in, in making something that is pretty damn impressive when you look at how much they probably were working with. Yeah. Again, that gargoyle, everyone watching this, it look, it's not it's not like you're watching a Stan Winston alien queen from aliens. It's not that big of a budget. But the K and B boys really, really burn the midnight oil and they they put together a gargoyle that's pretty fucking cool. And it's all cable controlled wings and you know the person is wearing sort of a stilt uh get up you know very similar to like when you see pumpkin head yeah that's uh, the one that comes to mind yeah or like david cronenberg's fly like when chris whalis did like the extended feet that had the backwards joints for the knee so it folded like in a weird way almost like a kangaroo kind of thing they they do everything they can do to give you like an awe-inspiring moment of, of like this creature. And I love it. Like it's Tales from the Dark Side is one of those movies that it's just a fun time. You could make some popcorn, you can order up pizza, you kick back and just enjoy three short stories, a fourth wraparound, which we haven't really gotten to the very end of the movie yet. And it's uh it's come up and it's candy. You know, it's it's people getting their just desserts. Um, which leads us Back to Mr. Lawrence, uh, trapped in this this little homemade uh, cell in Debbie Harry's kitchen, and he gets eaten. Uh, that's it, done. Yeah, it's a very very credits dark roll film. over it's... her just tearing into a young Matthew Lawrence. He plans his escape, and it deals with him. Like, it's impressive. He creates a powers. story. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's almost like he's given a divine intervention where he. He starts making up a story that he claims is in the book, but it's the story of him and how he's going to get out. So he's sort of narrating a Home Alone style moment. Yeah. That it's and like, it's oh, really, he remembers his marbles. Oh, but yeah. she didn't see the marbles. And it's like, it's almost as if spending time in her presence and reading from this book has given him the, the gift yeah. of being able to produce this now. But yeah, it's, I think it's a very fun way to end this movie on kind of a, it's like this odd dark light tone because like, yeah, it's it's jokey, but also a person is burned alive. Yeah, <laughs> just, you know, just burned alive. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of weird too, because Tales from the Dark Side, I think is actually a ripe property name. I, I know that like there is the Creepshow series, which unfortunately I cannot get on board with. Like a few of the stories are good, but... Overall, it was a huge letdown for me, and I didn't want it to be, but I just think it is mediocre at best, and it kind of misses the mark on all of the hallmarks of what made Creepshow great. It doesn't have, it just doesn't have that feeling, and it's sad that it doesn't. But I would not be against one of the other, like Hulu or 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 Paramount Plus or one of those. I wish that one of those streaming sites would sort of strike up a deal by the rights to the, the name Tales from the Dark Side. They did it with Twilight Zone two times, two different times. Yeah. I think they did it with a couple other things. I would love to see 
just the title Tales from the Dark Side come back and maybe tap talent like like a Ty West and people like that. And, and um, you know, we were talking about mayhem, you know, give that dude a, a few, you know, a couple of million to make an hour long story. I'd love to see tales come back. Tales from the dark side. Yeah. As, as a I show. think it's a, it would be a great jumping off point for a lot of like in, in that case, like a Joe Lynch or a Ty West, like they're, they're already, they have some clout. They're kind of out there, but all of these newer up and comers, Okay, maybe they're not going to be able to get like a two hour movie off the ground or this huge production, but give them some money. 21 minutes. Give them a shot at a story and just like do an anthology series thing like this. Yeah, like the team from The Void, you know, and and, um, I mean, a lot of these directors, they've gotten to do a couple of things that are big in our world, you know, like in the horror world, like the guy who made Barbarian and stuff. But I think those are names that for fans like us, if you had that that roster of those four directors mixed in alternated. You got a Ty West story. And then the next week is by someone we've never heard of. And then the next week you've got something from Joe Lynch. And the next week it's a guy we never, you know, or a girl that we've never heard of. That would be awesome. Like take the director of raw and give her some cash and be like, make a tales from the dark side, because it's always been tales from the dark side has always been from the TV show to the movie the little bit more like Maverick rough around the edges, you know, the edgier version. I'd like to see, I'd like to see that come back. Maybe it's just cause we've been like, like watching all these anthologies. It's making me, I always want anthologies to be awesome. Yeah. Um, and, and so I want more of them, but I <laughs> want them to be good. Season two. Yeah, exactly. That's gotta be happening. And at some point we'll maybe touch on, uh, the mortuary, uh, collection. Oh, yeah. yeah. I like that one. Yeah. I did too. That was good. So yeah, I mean that wraps up our our volume one of anthology of anthologies, right? Because we're so clever. Yeah, we were racking our brains for a time. Only three movies, but eleven stories this episode. Exactly, that's a lot of stories. So how can we how can we let all of our viewers know that they're doomed for listening to this episode? Because that's how half the anthologies. That we're going to cover, they end with, oh, you thought we were just telling you a story. You're you're actually in purgatory. Uh, there's no way to present that, I think, hey, in honestly, a podcast form. Purgatory, not bad if you still get to listen to us, I guess. This is true. And now, your quote for the week. And where do you live, Simon? I live in the weak and the wounded. Dark. So, for anybody out there that is going to let us know about their anthologies or um, tell us tales, I don't know, <laughs> shoot us a message over at don'topenthispodcast at gmail.com or reach us over on Twitter at don'topenthispod. Or, Mike, where can they find us over on the Instagram? You can find us at Don't Open This Podcast, or you can find me at Falsigno Art, or you can find Tim at Mr. Time. You can send messages to all three of us if you'd like. That's, that's fine. One thing that we do have to cover, because we're really getting to that point now, 
our mailbag episode that we're super excited to do the slaughter summer camp whatever whatever title we, we we have working titles but also we're open to you guys sending us a title that you think is perfect we might use it we might not but we are going to be doing a mailbag edition when we do our our summer camp slasher episode which it we're approaching summer quickly so we thought that if we gave you guys specific homework that maybe we would actually get some answers to some of these questions. So we were kind of talking off air and what we would love for you guys to send us is any um, mixture of the following things. You could write to us and let us know what your earliest horror film memory is, like which film really sticks with you is what you think your first horror movie is that you saw. That also could be, what is the horror movie that scared you the most as a kid? As Mike said, the the one that got you started. Or also, what's some of the horror that you still dread watching? Or what's some of the stuff that still gives you that It scare, makes you want to like shower after. Kid? Yeah. It's, the, the one that it, creeps you out even as an adult. It's the one you always are on the lookout because we get so desensitized to it that it's like every once in a while you see something that you say, that gives me that little jolt that I had when I was a kid, like watching Evil Dead. Regardless of if you love the movie or not, there's still something to it. Like the the Super 8 films and Sinister or something. And all of a sudden yeah. you're watching the lawnmower scene and it's just, ooh, this is uncomfortable. What was the stuff that kind of still sticks with you from those things? And since people seem to genuinely love our unsung horror, which un- underrated and unsung horror is like stuff that Tim and I love. So you should feel free if you want to send us what you think the most underrated horror franchise is or what your favorite underrated horror movie is. It's okay if we covered it already or if it's one that you're like, yo, why don't you guys cover this? It's my favorite movie that no one loves. Um, You know, we love Waxwork. We love Friday the 13th Part 5. We love, uh, you know, Freddy 2. There's so many things that we (laughs) love. We want to know, like, what is a movie that maybe we saw it once it didn't click with us but you think it's awesome and we're gonna we'll go and rewatch it and maybe it'll hit us differently and we'll be like holy shit how did we ignore this movie all this time yeah we'd also like to know did you have an absolute favorite episode that we did that just resonated with you uh you went out and found half the movies and you had never seen them and they were great anything you guys can think of let us know your thoughts because we will read that shit on the air uh, if you want us to plug your your social media, your Instagram or whatever, maybe give us a little note in there of like, this is my Instagram. If you want to be anonymous for some reason, tell us that and we won't say your name. We don't care. Um, <laughs> but yeah, help us whispers. out. <laughs> we can't have uh, a mailbag of four things. And uh, if we don't get enough stuff in the mail, I'm just going to go through all of the great Instagram comments we have, and maybe I'll read some of those comments from people. So don't leave us hanging. Yeah. So shoot us that email over at don't open this podcast at gmail.com, as we said, and we'll take a look through. And I know I it tickles me pink when I heard that somebody after one of our unsung episodes went out and watched Hardware because of that and enjoyed it um, because it's a movie that's near and dear to my heart. So tell us those tales. Um, it will do our heart good. Yeah. And if you guys are into like the fantasy football thing, but under the guise of the horror genre, if you want to just write to us with 
the the team up movie that you hope happens, you know, like Ooh. yeah, you know, do you do you want to see some sort of merging and crossing over of of two different uh, horror properties? You know, like let us know. Like I said, we we love your thoughts and we don't mind talking about them. We try and come up with things on our own to entertain you guys, but it's even better when it's specifically something that you brought up. Yeah. What are your favorite characters that shouldn't have died that you feel should have lived <laughs> in go. their movies? Uh, Top 10 is, kills, go! Yeah. <laughs> it's like all that. So it's craft your own episode and we'll just kind of work it out. We'll workshop it in real time on the next episode. Yeah, we'll uh, make this work. So thank you again for joining us for Anthology of Anthologies. We hope you enjoyed a tour of terror as all of the serialized carnage, any of the those little alliterative tidbits that you used at the beginning, Mike. <laughs> Um, you, you like those <laughs> charcuterie of shrieks that's, that's the one, that's the one. That's i think that's it. the next uh <laughs> that's the next game of thrones book that he's working on um <laughs> so we were going to title the episode one of those types of things but then i was like who the hell is going to read that and know what the episode's about like we can't call it that it's got to have the anthology in the title uh, but yeah we love we we love that you listen and uh, we will see you in two weeks. So enjoy, enjoy the, the evening. Nighty night.